The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, again. I'm going to finish up, Lord willing, this chapter today. It's taken us about three weeks to get through this final section. And we've entitled this little series, When God Has Had Enough. After explaining the truth of the gospel, Paul's not being ashamed of the gospel, he launches in verse 18 to talk about the need that every man has for the gospel and really outlines a total indictment on humanity beginning in verse 18 that will extend all the way into chapter 2 with both Jews and Gentiles being condemned before God, his righteous standard, his holy law, and even conscience itself. Let's pick up in verse 28 where we began a few uh, weeks ago and we'll finish up this section this morning. This is the third time that God uses the term through the Apostle Paul, God gave them over. It's the third part of that. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There's a graphic that's on your bulletin that we've been discussing for a few months now, and it will carry us through the rest of the study of the book of Romans. It's a graphic of a watch, a mechanical watch, an automatic watch that has gears and mainstrings and and lots of little intricate pieces. At the end of the day, though, it simply tells time. Romans does that for us. At the end of the day, it says, here's how to be right before God. Here's how to be saved. But there are so many moving parts to that theology. And the book of Romans is Paul just kind of opening up that that watch and showing us all those intricate pieces. One of the (coughs) mainsprings that drives the gospel understanding, though, is in the passage before us. And that's the depravity of man. Or as theologians call it, the total depravity of man. It's amazing to me that perhaps the most ignored part of theological studies is really the most pronounced expression in the world, and that is man's total depravity, his entire inability to please God and create righteousness in himself by which God would judge him and deem him faithful and worthy to come into heaven. Just last week in the Kansas City Star, there was an editorial, and in the religious editorial, this question was posed. Are we born sinners and unworthy of God's love? What an interesting question for the Kansas City Star to ask. The answers were interesting. I was particularly drawn to one pastor's answer. He is pastor of Unity Temple on the plaza. His name is is Duke Tufty. This was his answer to the question. Are sinners 
are we born sinners and unworthy of God's love? He writes, sinners aren't born. Holy smokes, where on earth did you get such a notion that sinners would be born, in other words? I say where on earth because that notion certainly did not come from heaven. Go to the maternity ward and the clo- clo- at the closest hospital. Look through the window where they keep those newborn babies and point to a sinner that could be deemed unworthy in anyone's eyes. I cannot imagine what kind of man, what kind of mind made up this original sin malarkey. It doesn't make a bit of sense. Every baby is pure, he writes, wholesome and precious. We are not born into original sin, but each of us is born an original blessing. I just want to throw up, by the way. That's not written in the article. (laughs) Then he begins raping God's word and taking it out of context. Jesus said that we are the light of the world and we should let our light shine. He also warned about allowing that light to be covered up by judgments that diminish one's self-worth. Can you hear the violins? And demonize the fine work of the divine creator. If you believe you are born a sinner and unworthy in the eyes of God, that's the way you'll live your life. If you believe you're a good person and and a beneficial presence on this earth, then that's the way you'll live your life. Don't you wish it were that easy? That's not written in the article either. So let me ask you a question, he says in the end. Are you born a sinner and unworthy in the eyes of God? The answer to that question is, he says, whatever you think. Am I picking on this guy? Yeah. How a man can call himself a pastor and deny original sin that every man needs a savior is the ultimate spiritual malpractice. Can I say this? If sin is not the problem, the gospel is not the solution. And if the gospel is not the solution, then let's throw the whole Bible away and just live as if we were Epicureans, just trying to get the most out of the next moment. Paul would take serious issue with this pastor in our city and his assessment that we are not born sinners. And by the way, I have three sons. Right? And they came into the world looking cute, but it wasn't very long before I realized they did not come into this world innocent. They did not come into this world precious non-sinners, and neither did your kids, did they? You don't teach any child. (laughs) It's the loudest amen I've gotten (laughs) from every father. (laughs) You don't teach any child how to sin. Your parents didn't teach you or me how to sin. It's automatic. Yes, we are born in original sin from which we need to be saved. And that's Paul's entire point at the end of Romans chapter 1. What do you think about man's sinfulness, though? How how total is your understanding of total depravity? Ask most Christians about total depravity, and you'll likely get a, a description of the front page of the the latest newspaper. You'll get a description of the world, a discussion about CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and all that's happening in the world, and they would be right, but that answer would be incomplete. Every discussion and every understanding of the depravity of man and the total inability of man must start by looking in the mirror. 
and by seeing that we are the first and foremost judgers of other people when God is always looking at our heart first. When we get into chapter 2, by the way, that's the point of the argument he gives against the Jewish self-righteous people in his day who were saying, yeah, we've got it right, but everyone else has got it wrong, and we'll get to that. Truth is that the seed of every possible evil that could ever be committed resides, ready for this, in your heart. The seed for every possible evil is born into our capacity, though not everyone expresses the totalness of their depravity. John Bunyan said, sin is daring the justice of God, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. And he's right. Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 1, if you go back to verse 18, where the wrath of God is described, and it goes all the way through verse 32, is a set of verses that unmasks the reality of the human heart. In fact, if we could put it in medical terms, what we're looking at is a divine x-ray, a divine MRI, a divine CAT scan for the soul. This unmasks who we are and shows us the reality of the human heart. And as we've said over and over, it's not pretty. And as we've said over and over again, if you don't like being called some really bad terminology, Romans is probably not the place to study. But the worse Paul makes our condition, the more glorious the gospel is because God would condescend and reach down and love and save sinners such as us, such as me, for his glory and for our good at the great expense of the death of his son. This passage also provides the greatest hope. Look back in verse 16. That's where we started (coughs) in this little series. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news, of the gospel. What is the good news? Well, we got to go back to verse uh, uh, 1. The the gospel of God at the end of verse 1, verse 3, concerns his son. The good news is that Jesus came into the world to give himself as a savior and a substitute and a propitiation for the sins of those who would believe. That's the good news. For I'm not ashamed of that good news, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. There's the qualifier. You must believe the gospel. Nowhere does it say, see if you know the secret elect handshake. See if you know the, the chosen by God you know, little dance that you can show people that God's chosen. You know, it says, believe. Just believe. Don't get tripped up. Yes, the Bible teaches election. Yes, the Bible teaches predestination. But the Bible equally teaches believe in the gospel. And anytime you want to resolve that with me, if you come to my office, we can make some notes. I'll write a book, and we will make a lot of money together. Don't try to undo and take out attention what God's scriptures leaves in perfect tension. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for everyone who will believe. If you'll believe, you can have the power of God that will erase your sins and place them on his son. God offers forgiveness, mercy, grace, pardon, salvation. He turns rebels into sons and adopts the worst in the orphanage called humanity for his own possessions. God sends his son to die for the penalty of sinners who would believe. But what happens when people don't believe the gospel. 
Who are the people who diss God's revelation of himself? Well, this passage describes that tragic reality. It addresses that issue. Though God's gracious mercy offers salvation to anyone who believes, there will come a time when God's grace will run out and when God has enough and when God turns the sinner over to his sin. Three times in this passage it says God gave them over. He gave them over. That's enough. Let's go back and review a little bit what we started in verses 24 and following. Three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. We talk about when God's had enough. Three ramifications for violating God's gracious limits. We began in verses 24 and 25 looking at this, being given over to impure hearts. That's the first ramification, being given over to an impure heart. In verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This is the deep-seated lusts of a man's mind. (coughs) so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. We talked about what that meant, both in the effects of sin and the pursuit of sin, and also the fact that your body would one day be killed or be, be, um, give up its soul, as is the case with everyone, and judgment would follow. We also saw that being given over to impure hearts in idolatrous motivations, verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worship, serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Man is on a constant search for things to give his affection, time, money, attention to, and it's everything and anything but the true and living God. Secondly, we looked at being given over to sexual deviance. Second ramification of violating God's gracious limit is being given over to sexual deviance. This is the darkest part of this chapter. It says it's expressed, first of all, in lesbianism. Bible talks clearly about it. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In other words, they went after women and not men. That's followed by the fact that it was also expressed not only in lesbianism, but expressed in sodomy, secondly. In the same way that women do that, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Lesbianism and sodomy, rampant homosexuality. That is a sign that God has given the sinner over to his sin. But let me say this. We never know when that final judgment happens until that person dies and until they do The church of Jesus Christ ought to be the people, the members of the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the people who extend and explain God's grace to all, especially those who are homosexuals. They're not the enemy, they're the mission field. We're not homophobic. We're not afraid of homosexuals. We're afraid they'll go to hell. That's the issue. Sexual sin is a consequence and result and outworking of the rejection of God and rejection of people failing to honor God. That's what's going on here. So, let's review. Three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. The first is being given over to impure hearts. The second is being given over to unrighteous, excuse me, oh, sexual deviance. And third, and this is where we're going to park today, is being given over to unrighteous minds. Being given over to unrighteous thinking, to minds that are depraved. This final section of Romans 1 
uh, Paul kind of parks on the heart, the mind, mission control central of who we are. And he provides a list of sins to which God gives people over. Now, this is what's remarkable to me. As we move through this list, you're going to find yourself in this list. You're going to find things you struggle with in this list, things you, you, you've repented of and you used to struggle with, things that are still a temptation in your heart. Don't forget that this is the third time God says that he's given people over and that this list is equally as culpable and damnable before God as sexual deviance and homosexuality itself. We have no rocks to throw at others except to sing what we sang earlier. Hallelujah, hallelujah, what a savior who saved a wretch like me. Being given over to unrighteous minds. First of all, let's look at the fact that being given over to unrighteous minds involves this. Unrighteous minds that generate comprehensive breadth of wickedness. Comprehensive breadth of wickedness. Wickedness and sin is expressed in a plethora of ways. So many categories. So many dimensions. Verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, literally, to have God in their knowledge. This is the, the translation. They didn't see that it was fit to have God in their knowledge. They wanted the presence, the awareness, the peering judgment of God Almighty erased from their thinking. They chose to stiff arm God. Have him literally out of mind, out of their knowledge. Just as they did not see fit to have God in their mind, God then gave them over. And he gave them over to a depraved mind. Acknowledge and mind are connected here. They didn't want God in his mind, in their mind, and God said, okay, I'm going to give you over to your own mind. And what's the result of that? To do those things which are not proper. And again, this is the third time God says he gives them over to their sin. God gave them over. Here the issue is more than just acts of sin. It's the heart of sin. It's a depraved mind. It's the mission control central. It's the heart. It's the core. It's the decision making, the problem solving processes. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. People only know a little sliver of who you are. We're defined not by what we do. We're defined by what we think. And what we do expresses a part of what we think, but certainly not the full expression of what we think. Can you imagine if everything we thought were put on a video screen for 24 hours a day? This is indescribably horrific here. Verse 28 asserts that man puts God to the test by the standards of a reprobate mind. And God does not meet the requirements for acceptance, much less worship. People actually say, well, okay, we see God. We know you're conscious. We've been, we've been uh, a part of the revelation of who you are in nature and through other people preaching the gospel, but you don't meet the standard. We're going to get rid of you. A depraved mind races and progresses toward a place where there is no room for God, only room for self gratification, and self-worship. And the standard is, I'm right. I'm right. God might be right. Others are usually not right. 
conscience, an internal witness of God through creation that Paul's just been describing for several verses is set aside, suppressed literally, so that God's gracious restraint on the expression of sin is then lifted. I think the test of this diminishing of God's restraint is is being embarrassed and having shame. When you see someone who has categories of sin for which they have no embarrassment and no shame, you see someone racing and running toward hell. Look at this word, depraved. Adokimas. Strictly failing to meet the test, unworth, uh, 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 worthless, unqualified. It's used of an athletic endeavor. You're disqualified. Depraved minds. It's literally a noose. It's, uh, the Greek word is noose. It's thinking, mind, heartbeat of, uh, heartbed of your decision-making process. God says that the, the depraved mind expresses itself in this list that we're going to see in a moment. But the opposite is true, too. That a saved mind and a redeemed mind issues forth in righteous pursuits and sanctified living and a conscience that works and a conscience that gets violated and it hurts and aches. We're to have the mind of Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, we've seen this over and over, so clear. God has given us grace through the true knowledge of him. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true Knowledge of him. Christianity is fundamentally a mental religion. It is fundamentally a thinking man's pursuit. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what happened or your experience. What do you think and what does God say? That's the issue in the heart of Christianity. As we said last time, God uh, God in general and Paul in particular is fond of lists. This is another list that we're coming on. Just a vice list is what theologians call it. He's going to give us a list of things that, uh, that are expressions of God turning someone over to their own selves, turning them over to a depraved mind. Now, I, I had really a, a bit of fun this week looking at how, how this list is broken down by different commentators. They say, well, it's sins of this and sins of that and sins of that. There, there's really, I couldn't find any theme and structure except the grammar, which says, uh, the, uh, there's nouns and, and verbs and adjectives. The first three, uh, the first four words in Paul's list of the outworking of a dra- depraved mind are set off grammatically by this word being filled with. Being, being filled with, and then he gives four descriptions. Let's look at that really carefully. Being filled with uh, adika, uh, uh, unrighteousness, means a total lack of holiness, anti-righteousness. If that's right, I want to be wrong. That's the point. Filled with unrighteousness, a lack of holiness, a lack of perfection, a lack of righteousness. This is sins of omission, sins of commission, doing what's wrong and not doing what's right. Being filled with wickedness. Panaria means evil-minded, wicked ways, evil doings, malicious deeds. Just being mean. People who can be just mean with no restraint and no conscience, that's not a good place to be before God. That could indicate God giving someone over to the meanness that's in all of our hearts. Greed, planexia, means coveting others' 
things. It's forbidden in the 10th commandment. An unmitigated passion for more, even at the expense of someone else. It's one thing to want something. It's something else to want it at someone else's expense. I mean, wanting things, materialism is just amazing. We'll get to this when we get to this commandment in the Ten Commandments study on Sunday nights, but it's stuff. Do you realize that our entire existence in terms of the material experience we have in this world, our entire existence is just rearranging stuff until we go to heaven? We're just rearranging stuff. Okay, you take stuff from the store, it lives with you for a while, moves into your closet, finds its way into a box, and it's probably in your basement. It's just rearranging stuff. Do you really ever possess anything? I heard someone ask, what do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? Figure that answer out and you won't be covetous. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. Read Ecclesiastes. Having things is a part of the blessing of God. Is If anyone is going to write with a nice fountain pen, it ought to be a Christian who can say, Look at the glory of God displayed in the design of this to do this with this stuff. What a God and what a creator. You can have stuff, but do you worship it? Do you exchange God's glory for the glory of things? Then the fourth word under this category is the work, it's the Greek word kakia. It's the workhorse word for evil, badness, wickedness, malice, moral badness, deliberate wickedness that delights in doing other people harm. You hear that? It delights in doing other people harm. There's a second list here, though, being given over to unrighteous minds. Secondly, that generate comprehensive depth of wickedness. Talked about breadth, how wide it can be. Let's look at the depth of it. Now, as we deal with the expressions of sin to which God has given people over, we cannot forget that these can be issues in the life of a believer that need to be sanctified and dealt with as well. Don't you wish when you came to Christ, he just said, erase all the sin and you have no inclination to sin? That's called heaven. It's not called this life. Look at this list. Full of envy. That's Jealousy over the good success of others is not coveting one of their stuff. It's envy. You're not, you don't like the person because they have achieved something or owned something that you just don't like them for. Full of envy. You just live your life wishing that you had someone else's life and lifestyle. Murder. means to slaughter and to kill. John Gershner wrote, Man as a sinner hates God hates man, and hates himself. Then he says this, he would kill God if he could. He does kill his fellow man when he can. And he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. And Jesus also qualified murder when he said, if you've hated your brother before God, you've done equally as culpable an evil deed as to murder him yourself. Next word, strife, quarrels and rivalries. You just like quarreling and debating and arguing. People who love to argue, even when they don't even remember what they started arguing about. They just love to argue, love to mix it up. They love strife, which always involves the next category, deceit. 
The word here is, is used for it's bait, live bait for fish. It means you bait people with something, but it's not true. You deceive them. You make them think one thing when it's really not the true. Malice, a disposition for producing mischief, wickedness, malice, spitefulness, typically has to do with causing disruptions in other people's relationships. Here's how it could work in junior high. I, I want to have this friend named A. This friend named A has a friendship with this person named B. Since I want this friendship with A, I don't want them to have this friendship with B, so I'm going to make sure that A and B don't like each other. I'm going to malign and gossip and put strife and enmity between those two people so that I get the relationship. That's what's going on here in the word malice. It just can't stand not being loved. Can't stand not being the focus and the the goal of the attention. Now we come, letter C in your outline, being given over to unrighteous men. This is the worst part that generate horrific creativity and wickedness. Creativity and wickedness. They're gossips. It takes a unique amount of creativity to be a good gossip. You have to learn how to lie. You have to learn how to embellish. You have to learn how to diminish, not tell everything and tell more than you want, tell, tell things that are tr- more than true and less than true. Tailbearers, secret slanderers. He follows right in verse 30 with the word slanderers, willfully spreading evil reports, diminishing a person's reputation either because you dislike them or you love yourself, which is usually one and the same. You just say bad thing about people. Are, are you that guy? Are you that gal? Are you that man? Are you that woman who... When people hear you talk, know that eventually you're going to come to some morsel about someone that you love to tell bear about. Folks, this is the stuff that, it's on the same level as homosexuality before God. It's almost hard to describe the next phrase in verse 30. Haters of God? Openly hating God? A person who hates God And what he stands for, God's righteous morality, threatens their sin. Therefore, they begin to enjoy the sin which leads and ends in hating the God who forbade it. Have you watched some of those pundits on the news, the cable news channels, who mock God? And it's usually with this this word, right? Well, I know the Bible says that. What's the word? But. But we've moved into a place where our culture hates God. And in the great pursuit of tolerance, the only person with whom the tolerant role is intolerant is the one who loves the true and living God. It's remarkable. And by the way, don't expect that it's it's going to get better. If you are under the illusion and delusion that we will somehow in our lifetime elect a Congress and a president and uh, local officials who will help the world get better. I've got some property I'd like to sell you in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's just not going to happen. If our Bible is right, it's going to get worse. Do we really expect, do we really expect that it's going to get better? 
Have you read the Bible? Have you read 2 Timothy 3? Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. If you think we're going to elect our way into a better uh, world, you are called an amillennialist. It's not going to happen. Or God's a liar. Insolent means a violent aggressor, pugnacious, especially one who takes a superior attitude, mistreats others out of his own revolt against God's revelation of truth. You're just aggressively mean. See how it's getting worse? One commentator said, this describes a jerk. Insolent. He's just insolent to people. He's a jerk to people. Look at how the the progression just seems to get faster and faster and staccato. Arrogant, proud, haughty, an empty boaster who brags of his position uh, and despises others because of theirs. I couldn't resist this. I I enjoy reading the paper week in and week out. Last week, um, and and I only know a little bit about who this this person is, so forgive me if I I act like I know more than I do because I don't. This is in USA Today. Lady Gaga... This was, the, this was the, the short little article. Lady Gaga travels with 20 bags. I'm assuming that's like purses, I'm, or is that suitcases? It's 20 bags. She has her assistants lay out her soap and toothbrush. She has a multi-million, she's a multimillionaire with a discount at some store I can't even pronounce. Lady Gaga lives the life of downtown Abbey Lady. Court records in a pending lawsuit obtained by the New York Post show uh, minus, though, by the, the, the unladylike mouth, they said. A former assistant is suing the pop superstar for more than $393,000 for unpaid overtime. In six hours of testimony, Gaga, is that really her name? Gaga, um, throws uh, her one time employee, Jennifer O'Neill, in the verbal gutter. O'Neill is a hood rat who is suing me for the money she didn't earn, Gaga says. And it was essentially a favor, and Jennifer was, a, a majorly, was majorly unqualified for the position. This is why I'm reading you this. This is what she says in this article. This is Lady Gaga speaking. Speaking of this girl who she's, who's suing her. She's just, she thinks she's just like the queen of the universe, Gaga said. And you know what? She didn't want to be the slave to one. Because in my work and in what I do, I'm the queen of the universe every day. That is arrogance. We laugh at that. We poke fun at that. Come on, you live like that every day. I live like that every day. We are the kings and queens of our universe, and we want the world to be ordered around us and our desire without the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. Leads right into the next one, boastful. This, is, this means showing off. We, we live to show off things. And then this phrase, this is, this is hard to even read, inventors of evil, one who thinks up new ways to sin. This seems to be the agenda of Hollywood. Not only the big screen, but, but just notice the basic plot lines of TV sitcoms. They're inventing new ways to express evil. Most are about the, the, the effort to normalize sin, to provide acceptance of sin, and to invite others to enjoy those sins. That's what most sitcoms try to do. Now, this next phrase is a curveball. It's a surprise. In the list of 
homosexuality, inventing evil, maliciousness, aggressiveness. This little phrase, disobedient to parents. Violation of the fifth commandment. 2 Timothy 3, 1, when it describes how bad the world's going to get, talks about disobedience to parents. That you know God's hand is righteously and furiously against the person who is disobedient to parents. This is obviously talking about a, a younger child who's still living in the home. Proverbs 10, 1, the, uh, a wise son makes the father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Proverbs 17, 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 29, 15, listen to this. The rod and reproof give wisdom. When your child tells you your discipline doesn't work, just smile and say, then God's a liar. You stick with it. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. I don't get the opportunity to talk to the elementary and junior high and senior high and some college students very often, but this phrase screams at all of you. If you are consistently disobedient to your mother or father, please be afraid. Please be very, very afraid that that could be an indication that God is giving you over to your own sin. It could be indicative of the fact that you're not saved. You need a savior. Children, how you respond to your parents is the single greatest indicator of the spiritual condition of your heart. How you respond to mom and dad is the single greatest indicator of the spiritual condition of your heart. We will come back to that in the fifth commandment in just a few weeks. Verse 31, without understanding, these last four words <coughs> just come very fast, and you can translate them like this. Uh, without understanding, that's senseless. Untrustworthy, that's faithless. Unloving, that's loveless. And unmerciful, that's merciless. So you put it all together. They are senseless, faithless, loveless, and merciless. That's the last four. Senseless, they have no sense. They don't do what makes sense. They, they have, they've lost common sense. Faithless. It says untrustworthy. Really, the word is more tied to faith. They don't have faith in the divine. Unloving. They, they just have no love for anyone but themselves. And merciless. They extract a higher judgment on others than they're willing to be laid before. That's the last end. That's the list. But that really all leads to verse 32. The fourth understanding and meaning of what it means to be given over to unrighteous minds. Lastly, being given over to unrighteous minds that generate justifying approval of wickedness. Can I just say that these next few minutes might be really uncomfortable for most of us? And although they know the ordinance of God, we just learned how they know the ordinance of God through the, the creation that God has given, his invisible attributes, his divine nature have been clearly seen through that which he has made. We'll understand also in, down in chapter 2, verse 15, that their conscience, the creation and conscience work together so that they know the ordinance of God. They know the law of God. They know what God expects. They know what's right and what's wrong. 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They can look at the world around them and see the people exercising their sin in the categories of this list and clearly say, that's wrong, I get it, I know it. Then it says, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval. That's one Greek word. Overwhelming ovation, hearty approval to those who practice them. Verse 32 talks about the fact that with sinners, there's a wrongful perception that there's safety in numbers. Not only practicing such things, but giving group approval to these things. John Murray writes, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of the things that we know have their issue in their damnation. If I hear someone else say, well, I don't mind going to hell because that's where all my friends are, I just want to weep when I hear that. Do do you understand that you will have no fellowship in hell? There is no joy. It's full of everything you fear and everything you dread. Ultimately, the worst part of hell is not being punished, but being in a place where you can never have a second chance at God. You never, there's no second chance. There's no court of appeal. Along with depraved minds comes depraved discernment. Just give approval to the things around you. That'll make us feel better about how we live. That's how it works. So what does that look like? What does it look like in our day, in our world, to give hearty approval to the things that we just studied in Romans chapter 1? Well, One of the ways it can work out is being entertained by sin. Can I just say it? Being entertained by things for which Jesus died. Oh, it doesn't bother me. I don't care if it bothers you. It bothers Christ. Where where are we? Well, you're going to set a standard there, Rick, that, that no one can. I'm not trying to set any standard. Are we giving approval by laughing at, by being entertained by things that are in this list? And calling them cute and funny and going to bed and recording the next show. Pornography. Pornography is giving hearty approval to the sin of others, isn't it? It can be nothing else but giving hearty approval to sexual deviance. Laughing at sin. I saw something happen with a friend of mine that was so encouraging. Uh, someone says something that was off color and uh, it, was, it wasn't a believer, says something in front of my Christian friend who was a believer, and my friend laughed at it. He laughed at it. He says, you know what? I just got to tell you, that, that really, that tickled something in my heart that's a part of my old life. I don't want to laugh at that. Okay, let me tell you why I don't want to laugh at that. And they explained the gospel to him. Sometimes the reflex is to laugh at things. It's to laugh at sin. I get it. What's the response to the sin? Sometimes it's the second decision that's more important than the first response. How about this? Giving unqualified friendship to unbelievers. Aren't we giving hearty approval to disbelief and unbelief if we can have years, yea, decades of friendship with an unbeliever who doesn't know where we stand with Christ? Are we not giving them tacit, hearty approval to their lives? Ultimately, ultimately, for the believer, it's giving unbelievers the impression 
that pursuing sin is no offense to our God or us. That's the bottom line. Giving unbelievers the impression that pursuing their sin is no offense to our God and certainly no offense to us. That's giving hearty approval. Now, you may be saying, look, if I start living like that, acting like that, saying those kind of things, I'm going to be an oddball. You're right. The Bible calls you a stranger and an alien. Not of this, what? World. We shouldn't expect to just be the nice neighbor next door who people say, well, they, they disappear on Sunday mornings. The, the gospel is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And at the same time, it's a sweet aroma of our Savior. How is it both? Well, it's both because we don't give hearty approval to these things. That the final giving over of God is when a person not only enjoys the sin, but says, everybody else should because I feel better about enjoying it myself when they do. That's the final turning over of God. Thomas Manton said, first, we practice sin, then we defend sin, then we boast of sin. That's what happens. This leads to an obvious question, though. You read that list, you read Psalm 73, you look around the world, and you say these people who are pursuing their own sin, they don't seem that unhappy. In fact, me fighting my sin, I find myself really upset about that most of the time. You ever read Romans 7? Man, the thing that I want to do, I, I don't do it. But the thing, the, the thing that I do do, I, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I, I, what? You're just confused? Perplexed? Conflicted? I don't do the things that I should do, and I do the things that I shouldn't do. You, you find yourself there? That's a good place to be. The question is, are we in the battle? I want you to look for a moment over in a book of the Bible that's not very familiar, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. When the world seeks to approve itself, when the world is going to hell together, it does lead us to say, what, how can we possibly go against that stream? <coughs> in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, Solomon gives this amazing Insight. This is, you can underline, highlight, star, memorize, put this on the refrigerator. This is a great worldview verse right here. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah, take a hard left, go backwards. Look at verse 11. Solomon says, Listen, I want you to get this. Because the sentence, the judgment, against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Here's what happens. People presume on God's mercy and grace. They live wickedly. They live sinful lives. God doesn't judge them. They think, well, if it didn't judge me today, he won't judge me tomorrow. They go pursue, pursue, pursue to the point where God gives them over to the pursuit of their sin. And it's easy to say, well, how does that work? Solomon says, you know, sometimes because that judgment doesn't happen right away, their hearts are given fully to do more evil. Well, I got away with it yesterday. I can certainly get away with it today. What's his conclusion? Verse 12. Tell you what, though. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may even lengthen his life, still I know 
that it will be well for those who fear God. And look at this last phrase, who fear him openly. That's not giving hearty approval to the sinful culture in which we live. We fear God openly. And beloved, if you do that, you are going to be the sore thumb at work. You're going to be the pariah of your neighborhoods. You're going to be disenfranchised. You're going to have family members who won't have you over for Thanksgiving. It's going to be hard and get harder, but... Solomon says, I know it will go well. It'll be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. Matthew 10 says this even happens in families where you have to say no to certain things in the family that are represented in that list in Romans chapter 1. And you're ostracized for it. Listen to Solomon. Listen to Paul. It will go well for those who fear God, yes, who fear him openly. In the very beginning, we were looking at that text in Romans, and I, I told you that this whole nasty sewage of the soul, this MRI of our depravity in the end of Romans 1, is all set in contrast against the gospel for which Paul's not ashamed. If you found yourself in this list today, I want to ask you, I want to beg you, don't, don't walk, you run to Christ today. Our prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes. There'll be men and women uh, to my right who will be ready to talk to you. I'd be willing to talk to you down here. Don't, don't get, please, I'm begging you, don't get to where God gives you over to your sin and then you have what the text says, no acknowledgement of God. You have no place in your mind for God and his standards because he crowds out you and your sin. Run to Christ and receive forgiveness. Don't delay it. Lunch can wait. Please deal with the issue of your soul's putrid depravity before a holy and righteous God who will only accept perfection, and he gives us that perfection by faith because his son's perfect, and he gives that to us. In exchange, takes our sin on the cross. That's just... Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, Mark Let's pray together. Lord, this is, <clears throat> this is just a dirty part of this chapter. It just feels so bad, mostly because I see a reflection of my own soul in it. I know, I see the seeds, I see the acorns, I see the the oaks of these sins that have happened in my life that are constantly being battled. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for Christ who gives us his righteousness, who takes our sin. Oh, Father, please save those who are running toward your limit where you'll turn them over to their sins. Save them from themselves. There is nothing in this life worthy of losing their soul. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his eternity before you? Draw sinners to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.